This is Mike Delatore, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Oh, man. It is going the only way it can go. I know it's 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 just a delightful slog into a very slow apocalypse. Very, the very slow, very boring apocalypse. I think for for most people right now, it's just the it's the not knowing. It's the not knowing how long any anything is going to take or last or be is that that's the thing. It's terrible, but hammy segue. You won't have to wait to find out who's our amazing guest today because it is Michael Delatore. That's right. You don't have to wait any longer. And, and, and tell us a little bit about Michael Delatore. Well, I have actually a super random connection to him, which I talked about off mic with him, and that's that I was brought in to possibly be an editor on a film that he had shot called The Hive, and there already was a cut of it at the time, and I watched it, and I think I lost the job when I said, I think this looks pretty good. The producers were like, uh, we know that it, it, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be fixed about this, and uh, we just kind of want to know what you, you know, you're not going to offend us. What do you think needs to be fixed? And I was like... I mean, you know, could, you know, a little tightening, a little nip and tuck. I don't know. It's pretty close. Like I didn't, I, I liked it too much. It's, it's a really good movie. It, it reminds me a lot of uh, Don Coscarelli, who we've talked about on the podcast many times because we had Chris Coleman on here and uh, it reminded me a lot of a Don Coscarelli movie and I highly recommend it. And Michael also shot that same director's most recent film, Brightburn, which is awesome. That's fantastic. All right. So we're looking forward to Michael Delatore in a couple of minutes here. Hey, hey Ben, what's, what's going on in the world? Is there any, anything happening? Uh, well, we wanted to talk. We had an idea for a topic for our George Foyt Close Focus segment. Uh, Ilya, what, what was our George Foyt Close Focus segment today? Well, uh, you know, we've kind of already talked about this before, but I think it, it, it bears repeating and getting into a little bit deeper now. Uh, the way the world is adjusting to uh, the pandemic and how they're going to handle it moving forward. And also that a very, very large movie studio just basically made their over-under bet on when we're going to get out of this. And I think that that's kind of interesting. I haven't seen any Vegas odds on when we return back to normal and how they they classify it. But uh, Oh my God, are there Vegas odds? Like if you go to Vegas, are people betting on this? And if so, can I punch them all in the face? <laughs> Hey, I want to take. I want to get in on that action. I want to. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy I'm, to punch you in the face if if you if you want. Thanks, I, I appreciate that. Hey, I'm gonna say last week of June, first week of July. That's where I think that we're gonna start to to come out of this. Disney's made the bet bet for Mulan on June. They they have a June release date now, and so clearly they expect theaters to be open and people to be returning to normal. Well, and I think uh, it's a safe bet for them because if it really looks like it isn't going to be June, they'll have enough time to push stuff forward. Like, I think that they have to say, like, OK, we have to own when people are going to be back. I, I have a, a nuanced thought about this. Uh, if you want to indulge me here for two seconds, please. I don't think we can go back to life until everyone, meaning healthy people and people with symptoms, until literally everyone can be tested. Because I feel like right now, who's got it is a just a giant black box. You could have it. I could have it. Anyone could have it. We don't know. You know, I've been reasonably isolated for the last few weeks. But, you know, I have walked in my neighborhood. Who, who knows what could be happening? You know, uh, anything could be happening. In, in countries like South Korea, where they locked it down, the way they locked it down, and Iceland too, was they just tested the living fuck out of everybody. Everybody got tested. And then if they found out that you had it, then they did like an extensive investigation into everybody you'd been in contact with and quarantined them and tested them. That's the only way to know, because right now we are the tests. Yes. Uh, one thing I've learned, though, about our administration is they don't give two Fs about what any other country did. They're doing it their own way. Oh, and I, I agree. The, the, no, but to me, that's the thing. Like when our, uh, I very much want to see Mulan. We interviewed the DP. When will you feel comfortable sitting in a movie theater? <laughs> I, I don't feel comfortable with the idea of going into a movie theater at the moment. Oh, I, I think as soon as our, our commander in chief just says, you're fine. I'll know we're fine. Uh, yes. 
So hopefully so eternal. I can't keep a straight yeah. face. Um, I know. The, the, the reality. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't trust any of those assholes. And, you know, the thing is, we're in California. And in Southern California, our governor locked us down pretty early in this, reasonably early. And so we've been doing an okay job of flattening the curve, as they say. Um, yeah. As far as misery and death goes, we, we have our share, but it's not New York. It's not like what's hap- going to be happening in, in some other places here really soon, too. Exactly. And I mean, like, we're going to know more in the weeks to come. But I, I mean, like, I, I'm interested that they're going to be releasing a movie in June. And I think that that's maybe a good bet. I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. Like, well, there won't be a vaccine f- until over a year from now. So clearly, uh, clearly, they don't think that'll keep people out of the theater. Uh, clearly, they think that the, the world will uh, adapt. So. It's interesting because oh the uh, the the headline of IndieWire, there uh, this uh, this announcement actually has made all sort of like the trades and and online publications. But the headline uh, on IndieWire says box office future exhibitors hope to reopen in June. Audience says slow your roll, which I, I think well, a lot I mean, people honestly, how will you, I, I think it's unfair to for either one of us to say when would you feel comfortable going to a movie theater? When would you feel comfortable going to a trade show? Frankly, when would you feel comfortable standing on a film set with, you know, 20 people who, you know, may or may not have something going on? But when do you think you would feel comfortable <laughs> going out in public? Uh, I, I guess I would have to say that that's going to depend greatly on the number of people contracting, uh, coming down with the with the infection, or the number of people uh, and what the situation is sort of like in in the world. I would say that there has to be a very good public regiment of of cleaning. Like you know, uh, <laughs> I think it's really interesting because they they. I saw that I think it was Metro was bragging about spending thirty minutes cleaning the subway cars right now because the subway here is still running, yeah. and I kind of feel like. They didn't. They didn't spend thirty minutes before cleaning it. I guess clearly that was that was. Uh, no, they didn't. I mean, like I, I never found LA subways to be horribly filthy, but no, they definitely didn't clean them at all. They they ran them all day. Yeah. <laughs> like when were they going to clean them? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> there there must have been some time in which they had to clean somewhat or something. But I guess now they're spending an extra half an hour. Yeah, but like you know, you can't clean the air that people are breathing. You know, you can't filter it and you know we can't all be on the subway wearing gas masks well well, Uh, i mean i think that that's kind of what's happening in some other parts of the world right now but yeah when would i feel comfortable going out out into the uh you know out in the public and doing stuff i don't know i think it's gonna depend greatly on what uh what the sort of infection rates and what the situation is at at large and we don't have that information like i gotta say like i'm far from a germaphobe I, i disagree with that you seem a little germaphobic I'm germophobic at the moment because uh, there's a virus going around that kills people. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, that, that might do it. Uh, I don't think that that's a phobia because a phobia is an irrational fear. This is uh, a rational not, fear. You're I'm, right. I'm not a Howie Mandel type person. I don't walk around with Purell in my pocket and, and, and you know, squeeze it all over my hand after I uh, shake somebody's hand. Uh, although probably we all should be doing that. Uh, although um, today that that is the absolute normal behavior. Total side note, I think we're just going to stop shaking hands. Like, why we shake hands anyway? It's goofy. You know what? We can, we can bow. That's how they do it in Japan. We can bow. We can, we can fist bump. Fist bumping is fine. We can do the jazz hand wave. We can do the... Uh... Yeah. There, we'll, we'll find a socially acceptable way to not shake each other's hands. You know, we'll, we'll watch Predator. We'll see that scene where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger shakes Carl Weathers' hand. That'll be enough. We'll be like, yeah, it's like, it was like that all the time for everyone. Now we don't need to shake people's hands. You don't need to worry about it. how's my grip, all that garbage that you know, all the all the insecurities that go through your head when you're shaking somebody's hand. Just uh, you know, m- move we're, on. We're just going to get rid of it. Yeah, it's gone. If I was a horrible, immoral Vegas person betting on when society would be rebooted, I think I would guess sometime next year. Like it'll be sometime next year when we're all back to doing all the shit that we used to do. I think that we're gonna. I mean, we're not going to all be living in our houses 24-7 for a year. Uh, I think we're going to start going back to offices and we're going to start doing stuff probably in a, in a few months, you know, maybe end of May, beginning of June or something like that. But I don't think we're going to be like full bore, like, hey, let's go to Coachella and rub up against a, a bunch of, uh, you know, p- people on hallucinogens who are slam dancing to whoever, you know, Bjork is playing there. You, we're not going to be doing that. Like, no one's going to want to do that for a while. I think that we're probably going to lose our taste for that for that for a minute. I'm sure it comes back. You know, I, I like to remember that we had our last major pandemic in America while well, in the world was in 1918, the influenza. And 10 short years later, we had a giant stock market collapse, which meant that in the intervening 10 years, we had a run on the stock market. 
it. Like we we had peace and prosperity for some period of that time. Hey, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna backtrack because while you were talking there, I happened to catch the actual date for Mulan. No, no theaters. Uh, there's there's some bets being made for June, but Mulan in particular, a major major tentpole movie, is now July 24th. So July 24th would be the earliest date for any major film opening in the country. Oh, well, I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, I'd totally go July 24th. Well, that's like... I'm buying my... I just bought a ticket just now on on Fandango. (laughs) (laughs) You going to plan on being there opening night? We'll have all our stuff uh, sorted by then. Yeah, yeah, we'll ha- we'll have it all figured out. We'll all have uh, figured out how to take chloroquine, uh, and uh, it'll 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 all be cleared up. I don't believe for a second that that's the case. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know, there's some other big movies that are uh, scheduled for around that similar time, including like Quiet Place Two and Top Gun Maverick. Those have been pushed. I know. I think at least Top Gun was pushed to September or December because uh, there are some bets being made that we will be back to functioning by then, by the end of the year. And and all of those plane tickets that like if you uh, canceled a flight on United, they're only giving you till December to like use that credit. So so we'll see how it goes. I, I, one thing that I think is going to be an interesting phenomenon to track and we haven't seen anything like this since 9-11, is that stuff that was made before all this is going to come out already feeling a little dated. Now, Mulan is a period piece, and, you know, like, that won't. But Top Gun Maverick or whatever, like, like this, I remember going to see movies right around 9-11 that were, like, you know, mainstream hit kind of movies that I would have wanted to see, and it felt like, it already felt like a period piece, even though it was just made that year. And I feel like when the stuff that was already made comes out after the dust settles on the Red Death here, it's going to feel weird, some of it. Like, some of it's going to feel like it's from a different century because our habits will already be different and our behaviors will have been drastically molded by what we're going through right now. So you believe this is a permanent change? Permanent change, not just, you know, temporary change that people don't go back to shaking hands, that you think permanently... I I mean, permanent, I don't know. I mean, like, was 9-11, were there permanent changes? I just think that... In the movies that were made in the in the year or two before 9-11 happened, I think that there were societal tweaks and changes. And I think stories that, you know, maybe felt like cool little personal smaller stories, suddenly those movies didn't resonate the same way they might have if had 9-11 not happened. And then I actually remember I had a manager then who I'm not a fan of. And in the wake of 9-11, I was trying to sell a horror movie. And uh, he's like, nobody wants horror movies. Horror movies are dead. Horror's dead. No one's ever going to make another horror movie. He was like really insistent. And at the time, they were rebooting the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he literally said, oh, but this this time it's more of a psychological thriller. He literally said that. And I'm like, uh, it's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, buddy. You, you, you don't, don't get a kidder. And then, of course, in the wake of that, horror became the hottest property ever 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 yeah for we, we, we might be moving years. into a we might be moving into a new horror renaissance right now i'm counting on it i mean like i it's not a silver lining it's there is no silver lining to this but i i do think that an after effect of this will be that we're gonna have a lot of people walking around who've been dealing with a lot of anxiety and need an outlet for that anxiety and to me horror movies are an outlet for anxiety that's how i use them yeah well uh i think that we should uh, probably run the interview right now with mike delatore All right, everybody. Uh, And we should mention uh, the interview with Michael Del Torre is the first one we did on Zoom. We're continuing to do interviews. We have a very exciting one coming up this week. So the quality is a little different because we weren't able to be in the same room, but we wanted to keep making the podcast. So uh, for all intents and purposes, recording a pot, uh, an interview on Zoom is a lot like being in the room with somebody. Just the audio quality won't be the same. So uh, here is our interview with Michael Del Torre. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Here we are in uh, lovely quarantine land, and the Cinematography Podcast is moving forward, and we are interviewing uh, Michael Della Torre via Zoom, which everyone's using. The Zoom was actually my short end last week because I was using it for another project, but uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be our guinea pig on this uh, inaugural quarantine edition of the Cinematography Podcast. Oh, well, hey, thanks for having me, Ben. I like trying new things. This is pretty new. Yes, this is pretty happens. P- pretty new, but, you know, yeah, we've done a couple interviews via Skype. Anyway, uh, so ordinarily we'd be recording from Burbank, but I don't know what part of town you're in. I'm in Sherman Oaks. We're, uh, we're all over the place now, and our, our producer yeah. Alana is also uh, here in case she decides to uh, chime in. 
So the first question that I always ask before we even get into the, the main interview is you see a script, I hand you a script, you read it. What is it you see when you read the script? Do you primarily see uh, the way you want to light something? Do you primarily see the composition? Is there something else that you see? What's the first thing that occurs to you when you read a script? I think when I first started and, and maybe uh, as, as in my younger years, I uh, very much looked at the lighting of mm-hmm. how something would look. Just It was just something I think mainly because I'm very camera specific. Sometimes uh, that was an easier, not not an easier thing to think about, but it was, it was a, a little more secondhand, mm-hmm. whereas lighting kind of like you can draw a little more emotion from lighting sometimes and I can do that. What, um, what I think about now, though, <laughs> is actually how much of my life do I want to give up <laughs> for, for this project? Uh, because it, it literally is like you're giving up not only, you know, your time and, you know, you're missing out on stuff. You, yeah. you miss out on fam- family things. You miss out on, uh, I've, I've had breakups because I work too much, you know, so it's, that's kind of where I look at it uh, currently. Mm. Can you think of a moment where that, when you started, like how, how far were you into it when you started thinking of a project ver- in terms of its impact on your actual life? I'd say probably around 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think it was just turning 30 and I was uh, realizing how much of regular stuff I was missing out on. My friends were going out and doing things and <laughs> having vacations and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, and I had gone through a couple really bad projects uh, I tell people all the time that if you can try to, you know, trust your gut when you read something and you think that it's going to, it's going to be like, it's not going to be good. And it's, you're just going to be mad the whole time, or, yeah. or it's, it's not going to be something that's going to, you're going to benefit from in any a positive way to not do it. And I did a bunch of those and they, and they, they kind of like sent me straight in a way. <laughs> But to kind of steer us a little bit towards process, when you're looking at a script, let's say it's a director you've worked with before, somebody who's, whose work you admire, somebody who you've already talked to and you're interested in in the prospect, how do you go about kind of figuring out you know, how to, how to take that script and turn it into, into the imagery that you create? Because you create really striking imagery. Some cinematographers, you couldn't necessarily tell their work to look at it, and I feel like your stuff has a real, a real punch that's very specific. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's a process that I've learned over the years. Being a fan of the podcast, I know that you also <laughs> ask a question of, are you plumber or artist? Yeah, that, that's Ilya's pet question. Is, is that pl- Ilya's pet pl- question? Pl- plumber or artist. I'm a lighting versus composition guy and he's plumber versus artist guy. But yeah, we, we do talk yeah. about that a lot because yeah, let's, uh, let's steal Ilya's question. H- how do you uh, find yourself on that spectrum? I would say that I'm a lot plumber. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, two thirds plumber, one third artist probably more mechanic than plumber just because that's kind of like my heritage like my family uh, are all mechanics and I even helped my brother in his shop when I was 10 years old uh, oh really taking stuff apart so I really like the mechanical aspect of making things work and stuff like that and um, because of that I think in that terminology first in that I find out technically how something works and how I can use it artistically Mm-hmm. I think a, a lot of really good artists, people, people seem to put this stigma that like artists just happen to do this cool, cool, crazy stuff. And it's not always the case. I think a lot of artists actually know what they're doing. A majority of them do. <laughs> believe you know, it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Believe it or not. They don't just paint something and you go, wow, Mona Lisa's smiling, but she's not. It was like, yeah, no, he he knew what he was doing. <laughs> One of my favorite artists right now, and uh, if you want to look her up, is Alexa Mead. And what she does, sorry, my Alexa just turned on. <laughs> so Alexa Mead is, uh, she's a painter who actually paints on people's skin. She paints on three and three-dimensional objects like cars, and she makes it look two-dimensional. So you see it, it what she's actually doing is she's actually... Um, messing with our our visual system and messing with our depth cues and essentially turning the depth cue a certain depth cue off so that we can't see the perspective and yeah. these images look flat and if you look them up you're like it's crazy i'm looking at it right now it's it's amazing yeah yeah that's a really cool right? idea and so it's things like that where like she didn't just like start doing it and it's all of a sudden it's just like oh i'm doing this and this looks cool it's like she knew like oh if i paint this a certain way i can make this look flat and by doing that, now I can put these tableaus of life and whatever she's trying to say artistically 
through that. That's crazy. I'm looking at her stuff right now, and it's it's really fascinating to look at because they just look like interesting kind of impressionistic paintings. Yeah, well, I mean, there there's another you know, person right there, Monet. You know, impressionism. That wasn't. He. It's not like he just started painting it like that, and this was like, oh, I'm just yeah. gonna paint this way. Well, you know? it's. It's an argument that I have with a few people and, uh, you know, I'm not even saying I'm right when I argued this point, but I feel like a lot of times we talk about how talented someone is. And, and to me, it's irrelevant. Like if, if you start really digging down and say, what is talent? Is it like, are you born with the ability to write symphonies or paint like that? Or do you work your ass off? So if, if we're saying that someone has a talent for something, what we're, are we, are we undermining the fact that they've you know, spent God knows how many hours working their asses off to to be competent at it and still probably feel incompetent at it. Some of the best uh, artists I know suffer from major insecurity and don't think that they're as good as, as they as everyone else around them can clearly see they are. And so, you know, to me, when we have that conversation, which is, you know, maybe more of a philosophical thing about like, what is talent to me? It's like t- whatever talent is, who cares if, if you're you're born with natural balance and you can, you know, be an Olympic athlete or something neat. But like, don't undercut the person who worked their whole lives to be good enough to do that and didn't necessarily have an inclination towards it. Yeah. So you said something that I thought was really interesting and no one's ever said before about how you see your work as being part auto mechanic, basically. Uh, like, what are the where are the parallels between auto mechanics and, and the work you do as a cinematographer? Well, a lot of it has to do in the in the facts that you're fixing something right <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, which is what we do in filmmaking. Like every, (laughs) every day I come to set, it's, Hey, this isn't working. How do we fix this? And then sometimes it's routine, right? It's like, Oh, well I can, you know, if I take this, this thing off and this thing off, then, then I can get to that and it'll, I'll make it, I'll replace it. I'll make it work. And, you know, filmmaking can be routine. You got your wide, your medium, your, and your overs and you're done, whatever. But um, I think of it a lot of sometimes you, you that routine doesn't always work. You, you'll replace the part and the, the still won't work. Yeah. And so you have to think about like a different way to make this to make something work. And um, it's something I've actually learned a lot from Dan Sasaki at Panavision. Only because a lens works a certain way doesn't mean you can't make it work a different way and, mm-hmm. and create an interesting image from it. It's, I mean, it's what creative people do, right? We, we take something that maybe isn't supposed to work a certain way and, or, or maybe it's a flaw in, in how something works and we use it, you know. Totally makes sense. Can, can you think of an example of like a time when you were on a set and you figured out how to use something in a way it wasn't necessarily designed to be used? We, we did this thing one time with the, uh, this is back when we, we were using Genesis cameras. Oh, man. And the director wanted some sort of like very smeary image that was still sharp at certain points. Mm-hmm. And I realized that when you separated the deck from the body and you recorded the deck, the deck was a separate recording system at that point. And then the camera, if you change the settings on it, it would it would smear. And you were recording that smear separately. Oh, really? Like while yeah. the settings menu was open or something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. crazy. <laughs> The camera would not let you do that normally because if the deck was on the camera, it would override it. But because you separated it (laughs) and I think we had, you know, and, and this was one of those things that we told people as a prep tech, when people would come in, we would tell people almost as a, as a safety warning of a bunch of, you know, you come in, you go, don't press this button or this will happen or don't press this. And if this happens, fix, you know, troubleshooting. That was one of those like, Oh, (laughs) If you if you do this, you're gonna accidentally record smears, so that might not be a thing you want. But it turned out to be a thing we wanted. And oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's go back a little bit and talk about your background. Uh, when was the moment that you know you decided to pursue this particular career? Well, yeah. So that's going back quite a ways. I mean, I was I was in high school and I was in a, uh, a performing arts group called Colors United. It was a great program to keep us off the streets and give us something to do. So I did that program and um, in 95, 96, Tail Vandesan and his wife, Michelle Han, they shot a documentary about us called Colors Straight Up. Yeah, and it was actually nominated for Academy Award in 1997 for for best document, best feature length documentary. Oh, sweet. Yeah, so I I saw them, you know, filming us and um, thought about it. It was like before that I was doing like little things with my my dad's um, high eight video camera, so like Sony high eight camera. And 
you know, shooting little shorts with my friends, with my family. Um, and it wasn't until then that I realized like, oh, this is, this is actually something I could do. And a buddy of mine, Sal Alvarez, who's a camera assistant right now, uh, he's actually pulling focus on my current movie. Oh, cool. And, yeah. And uh, so he was, he had just graduated. So he was a senior and he, he took me, he was like, oh, you like this? I was like, yeah, dude, oh, this is really cool. And he's like, well, here, come with me to this um, thesis film. And so that he took me on my first film set, which um, was actually Justin Lin's UCLA thesis film. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was a PA on that. And I was like, this is awesome. And then he's, he took me on this other, a couple other sets. And then after that, I just was like, I made friends with a bunch of people and started just doing it. And I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. So from that point on, I just, whatever I could do to get that exposure, go out on sets, PA as much as I could. So did you, you know, not go to, did you go to film school at all? No. So I did a program right after high school called Inner City Filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Kind of a similar program to Colors United and that it was, you know, for underprivileged kids to get exposure to filmmaking. And I did that in the summer and I wasn't, I wasn't able to go to any of the universities because I was actually undocumented at the time. Oh. Yeah. So I, it, it, we were going through the process about a year or two after I graduated from high school, I finally got my residency. So when you're undocumented, you you don't have the ability to apply for any uh, scholarships. And unfortunately, I was like, I was primed for all the best scholarships other than <laughs> my residency. Like I had a four point, oh. I had a four point two GPA. I was oh wow, you know, I had all the leadership stuff. I had all the you know, I was a prime candidate for all those things. So, but I couldn't apply to any college because of that. I ended up going to LACC where I could afford the foreign tuition, which they actually didn't really care. So they just kind of like let whoever in, you know, cause it was like, it was, uh, it was LACC. They just, they were like, ah, oh, we'll, we'll put you down as you're a California resident. You know, we'll, we'll put you down as you know that. And actually I think it's a really good program. I, I tell people all the time right now, like if you don't have the money to go anywhere, go to LACC. It's been around for a really long time. The cinema department, um, you can go straight into cinema. You don't have to like take any GEs or anything like that. So I, I did that for almost two years and then I got a job at Panavision. Oh, cool. My, like my last semester at film school and I ended up dropping out because I didn't have, I, I couldn't do both at the same time. I couldn't work at Panavision and go to school just because Panavision was actually a really demanding job. So what do you think you got from going? I mean, I think it's amazing. I, I also went, I went through a four-year program as well, but I went to a, to a community college for film, for, for my first film school in Florida, the Valencia Community College Program. And, uh, and it's kind of an ongoing thing that we talk to people about here. Uh, like, what do you, what do you think the value of film school was for you? For me, it was meeting as many people that were like-minded as myself and they mm. were, wanted to work as hard as I could, because you know how it is film school, you go to film school and it's like uh, a majority of the people there are like, Oh, I'm a filmmaker or whatever. And yeah. they, you know, they're, they're there because that that's kind of like, they think it's cool. We went because we loved it, right? It was like before filmmaking is now cool, but when we wanted to do films, we were dorks, you know? <laughs> of course. People were like, oh, you're a dork, you're a film, whatever, you know? Now now everyone's like, oh, that's so cool. Um, but you still had those people that were there and not really understanding what they wanted to do. And then you also had people that, you know, talk about work ethic. Like there was a year that I did not take a day off. Mm -hmm. I was working five days a week at Panavision and I was working on shorts or, or peeing on weekends every single weekend for a whole year. And, um, I, it, it nearly killed me, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I met a lot of good people. Well, this actually le leads into a question that, that's burning in me right now, yeah. which is the whole time that you're there as a camera assistant or not as a camera assistant, as a prep tech, is it in the forefront of your mind that you want to move on to be a DP or do you see the, cause like, you know, it's a completely legitimate path to say, I'm going to go be an AC and you can make, you can have a whole career as a camera assistant, uh, you know, make good money, work in the union, work on big stuff, you know, all that, all that stuff. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with deciding to do that, but were you, was it in the forefront of your mind that you wanted to be a DP? And if so, like, when was the moment that you decided that that specifically was the direction for you? I ha I did. I went in there having a five-year plan saying, okay, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be here for five years. I'll do what I need to do to get out as a loader and then work my way up. And I think it was pretty much at the beginning. I, I started shooting music videos for my friends. Like the first year mm -hmm. I started working at Panavision, 
uh, going back to Phil Radin, who was the marketing rep at the time and was a, a mentor to me, he would actually let me take out camera packages over the weekend. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. So I was taking out, you know, 35 millimeter platinums and pretty much if it was on the shelf, you know, I'd take it out over the weekend. And I had a bunch of buddies that were loaders and they were constantly throwing away short ends. I'd come by, like drop off some gear and then they're like, oh, here, take these short ends. And they'd give me like 5,000 feet of film. Oh, wow. And, you know, we, we'd, we'd raise some money to get, you know, to get it processed and get it telecined. And we'd shoot music videos for like a thousand bucks. Nice. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so all these camera assistants would see that I was shooting. They would always be like, dude, you're already shooting. It's kind of like I was shooting what I could when I could. And at the meantime, I was a, I was in a company that not only nurtured my artistic vision, but then also like I was surrounded by the technology. So I was kind of in the forefront of a lot of that, of a lot of stuff before even some people even got the chance to see it. Um, well, and you're there right when like the Genesis is coming out and right when kind of the switch to digital is beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even for a lot of other stuff, I mean, I, because I would shoot Dan Sasaki, who uh, if people know Dan Sasaki is like, you know, they call him like the evil genius of lenses. He's just like... More than a few people have brought his name up on our podcast. Yeah. Over the years. <laughs> yeah. So Dan is awesome. And Dan will, he, you know, I'd show him some of my shorts or music videos and he would give me a lens. He'd say, all right, it only focuses to six feet, but you need to shoot this lens for me because I want to see how, how it looks. And so uh -huh. I would take a camera and <laughs> shoot sometimes just technical stuff like a board with like scientific stuff. And then I would bring in one of our friends and shoot like a face. And, and then like I would do things like beat it up, like shine bright lights at it or, 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 or just do things that, you know, you probably wouldn't do normally just to like kind of get a good impression of how the lens is supposed to, how, how the lens will hold up. And so then we'd go into the theater at Panavision and watch it with Dan and he'd go, oh, I need to fix the blah, blah, blah and this. And then, oh, dude, you, you, you just showed me something I didn't know was happening. I can fix that, blah, blah, blah. And, and so then I would start shooting essentially prototypes for him. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and it, there's uh, especially, uh, and, and we'll get into your movies here in a second, but like in The Hive, there's kind of an experimental vibe to the, to the shooting of it. And I wonder if like you just beating up these lenses and, and, you know, kind of see, like, did it give you ideas as a cinematographer that you probably wouldn't get if you were just like, okay, we're here to shoot, you know, scene X, but like you've, you've like, you know, pointed laser beams down this thing and done whatever crazy other stuff you could do to it. Like, did it give you a lot of ideas like that? Yeah. And, and then that goes back to the whole, like the mechanic aspect of it, of like, you know, knowing how something works and knowing what when something doesn't work, how I can use that to my advantage. You know, going back to the, the, the imperfections of stuff that is what we like, if I weren't able to push it to the extreme, I wouldn't know what the extreme was. And then in turn, I could use that. I could say, oh, well, you know, let's say I'm, I'm reading a script and it calls for some sort of like dream sequence or something. And I could go, oh, well, you know, there is, if I shine the light directly here, then I know it's going to bounce off of these things and create like a rainbow to certain highlights. Yeah. And that to me feels dreamy. Then mm -hmm. I'm using the technical aspect to, to help guide my, the artistry of it. Yeah. And that's one of those things that I was able to do. There's times where I actually was on, I was on Brightburn and I started taking a lens apart and everyone was like freaking out. <laughs> Cause it was like, what are you doing? I was like, Oh, it's fine. Dude, it's fine. Just watch this. It's just like, just because there was something actually wrong with the lens and I actually fixed it. But I've also done that before where like, um, where I've actually, yeah. If that, if that happened in front of me, I'd be like, which yeah. sorcerer, yeah. <laughs> like, the, like anyone who knows what's going on in the lens is, is like, that's crazy to me. You know, like I'm, I'm paranoid at the thought of taking apart any lens of all at all, you know? Oh yeah. No. And I've, and I've actually swapped like one time I like swapped the front element on a lens, uh -huh. on a music video. And everyone was like, what are you doing? I was like, watch, right, check it out. It's gonna be cool. But I knew that <laughs> I knew that I could do that. I knew that because, because having part of my education at Panavision was literally hanging out with Dan Sasaki in the projection room where they put the lenses on the bench and project them through. Mm -hmm. And he'll like, yeah, he'll yeah. take stuff off and I'll be like, whoa, what did you just do? And he goes, oh, I just took the whatchamacallit off because this does this and that. And I'm like, oh, I could totally, use that for you know I, we did this uh, music video for corn and he did something where the light literally tore itself apart 
and and uh-huh. and and the music video was about like it was called hater where basically people were talking about all these haters in their lives and how they they basically made them feel like they're being torn apart uh, we should uh, put a link to that video in our show notes yeah yeah i think that'd be something you know that'd be cool for people to check out so did you stick to your five-year plan at panavision <laughs> uh no i mean add 13 years to the five-year plan i think oh really yeah so you were <laughs> You were there for 18 years? I was there for 18 years. Yeah. But in but while you were there, you were shooting a lot of stuff. Yeah. So while I was there, again, having the support system of people like Phil Radin, Jim Rodebush, and, and Bob Harvey and all these guys, mm-hmm. they would allow me to take gear out and shoot shoot my, you know, my basically my my reel. And what that allowed me to do was I would meet people like David Yaroveski, the director of The Hive and Brightburn. And Actually, that one came through a friend of a buddy of mine who was a loader. He was going to shoot this music video for David and he got a new loading job, so he couldn't do it. So mm-hmm. my buddy introduced us and I shot this music video for him. And, and we've been we've been tied ever since. It's been 12 years. Yeah, the whole time I was shooting and we shot the Hive in 2014. So that was my first feature. I remember seeing the Hive and um, and the Hive is an extremely visual film. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong. I felt like a really uh, strong influence of like uh, Don Coscarelli's films in that film. Uh, what what kind of stuff were you looking at as a reference for that, or what were you going for? Well, you know, uh, David has a David has a specific style. It's it's very interesting because um, I feel like as a DP, it is my responsibility to bring the director's vision to life. Mm-hmm. And when I first met Dave, you know, he 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 has a lot of these crazy ideas. They weren't necessarily my style or even like something that I was like, oh, I like that. Or or at times that even made sense. And then we would shoot it and it would get assembled and I'd be like, oh, now that makes sense. He's got a very unique style. So from us shooting a lot of music videos, it had a lot of kind of like Marilyn Manson style, grungy. It was like grungy punk rock meets like Tim Burton. He wasn't afraid to like let something blow out. There were times mm-hmm. in that movie where like he wanted such high contrast. You know, we we had like one stop of latitude essentially. And that just created a very, a very poppy image that was really hard to work with. But I think it just came down to a lot of us being able to experiment and not really caring. There were times where uh, we actually, I don't know if you remember in the movie, but uh, I'm not spoiling this. I don't know if I think I'm spoiling this for anybody, yeah. but there's two there's two professors, uh, you know, old Soviet professor and a new American professor, and they find the contagion that's that's creating the hive, right? That entire stuff was flashback. And we were we shot it all through the perspective of these two professors or these two scientists, and we shot from behind their head the entire time. Yeah, yeah. And so the first two days of shooting was the back of two dudes' heads the entire time. <laughs> and uh, I remember one of the actors turning around to us and going, uh, the, the, the Russian guy going, when are you going to shoot my face? And we're like, uh, that's part of the thing. And then, you know, then the producers freaked out and they were like, why, why are we shooting their face? It's like, cause this is the, this is the whole thing about the flashbacks this is how the flashbacks are going to work. And until they saw a cut, they didn't really understand. They finally understood it when they saw the cut. And yeah, what that yeah. was, was, was Dave really pushing for something different and me just being, being willing to just like continually push it with him and, and find something, something cool. And that's kind of, you know. Now, before you worked with him, did you have an affinity for uh, genre stuff? Cause you know, you've, you've done uh, some genre stuff. I mean, and you know, both of them notably with him. So you've done the hive and Brightburn, yeah. but also like you were saying, you, you've done numerous music videos with him. But was genre a direction that you were going? Because I, I I feel like they're really fresh, different takes of genre. Yeah. Films. No. Thank. I mean, I uh, not really. You know, right after the Hive, I did a movie called um, Heartland, which is a family drama set set in Oklahoma. And then we did Brightburn. And then I just got I got back from Canada last year doing a movie called Books of Blood. I know that's I I have so many questions about oh, yeah. Books of Blood. I don't know how much you're allowed <laughs> to talk about it. Well, it depends on how much. Yeah. Uh, I so, like thrillers. And to me, like, mm-hmm. you know, Brightburn was a thriller. This Books of Blood movie is is definitely a psychological thriller. Well, Brightburn is also, yes, it's a thriller, but it has serious elements of horror yeah. in it. It, it, it. You know, for those who haven't seen it, you know, it's basically sort of like a Superman mythos 
if if he was not good <laughs> like early years of you know the 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 origin story of superman if he was a bad person yeah. and like what would happen if somebody had that kind of power and was also a child yeah a 13 like kind a of 13 bad. year old you know child that's just you know yeah the worst kind yeah, I mean, like you know, so so yeah, I know I understand it's a thriller, but like you captured some pretty horrific mm-hmm. imagery, some really like world world class horror imagery in yeah. the movie. Thanks. No, it was we were just talking about this with a friend of mine. It's just um, you know we're talking about who what our favorite or what our scariest um, horror films were, and you know, as a kid, like what what was what was mm-hmm. the one that you woke up in the middle of the night and you know probably peed your bed on, <laughs> like, <laughs> like as a true kid, you know. And for me, it was a uh, Candyman. Yeah. Oh and yeah. They redid. They were. They did a. They did a. Um, yeah. Jordan Peele's doing a remake. Yeah. That's to me. I was like, oh, that's 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 gonna be so cool. And and but then I also remember all the Nightmare on Elm Streets. So when you talk about like thrillers, like you know, from a cinematographer's point of view, what do you consider kind of your bag of tricks for those kinds of movies? Mm-hmm. I guess maybe a better thing than saying bag of tricks because that's sort of like saying like what's your what's your what's your gimmicks, magician man? Yeah, yeah. But it's but it's more it's more like what are the things you're looking for? How are the ways that you're using your your craft to kind of ratchet up tension? Right. What are you looking for in the script to uh, to cue you or you know like yeah. what, what do you try and work into there? Well, yeah, we know visual language is key, right? If you fail on that, you've failed on making a movie. You've basically made you know a movie that doesn't work. And to me, it's about does it scare me on the day, right? Because like you know how like everyone, everyone, <laughs> you're watching what's the old the analogy of like you're you're see, you're seeing how the sausage is made. Yeah, yeah. When we were doing the eyeball thing during *Brightburn*, oh. you know, there were a lot of parts to it. At the time, I I wasn't happy with it. Actually, mm-hmm. I just it wasn't like it wasn't enough for me. I was like, no, until I saw the composite, <laughs> and then I was like, oh okay, yeah, that's good. That'll work. <laughs> I was That'll about work. to say, you know, how much how much further could you take that? Idea? Yeah, it's yeah. So, and I was like, it's so extreme to begin with. Yeah, and and part of that was, you know, just some of it was you needed to see the gore of it, and how I yeah. how can I show the gore of it without letting you know the camera or the lighting get in the way, uh-huh. you know, and then sometimes you want that the camera and the lighting has to like motivate this the the emotional aspect as far as like you feeling scared. For someone else. When you say that, you mean like, you know, pushing in on somebody as they mm-hmm. hear something or like what, like specific yeah. kinds of things like that? Yeah. And a lot of that ha- would happen on the day, right? We, we'd know we'd want to like, like when I break down a script, I, like going way back to like the beginning of our interview, essentially breaking, when I break down a script, I'll do, I'll do a pass. So I have a whole spreadsheet where I put down all the scenes and then, uh-huh. and I'll write out like whose scene is it? What kind of emotion do I want to, do I want to convey in that? And that's, mm-hmm. and then, and then I have the director's notes because there's my notes and then there's what the director wants to do. Right. And mm-hmm. sometimes the director doesn't know. And a lot of times, you know, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of really good directors that are like, this is, you know, uh, this is what I want to do in this scene. And then what I just do is I sweeten it up more. Right. I was like, okay, cool. I like what you want to do there. If we pushed it into this direction, how does that work for you? And they, you know, and, and give them a, a better idea of that. In that, I, I can go back to my notes on the day when we're shooting and be like, oh, we want, you know, this is a really dark scene because of the content. Let's make it really dark. And and you can decide on that on the day. And sometimes you go, all right, oh, yeah, we, we plan to do this. And then we saw somebody come in and they did something differently. And the actors, the actor decided they didn't want to stand over there. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it actually brought a great idea. It was like, oh, you know what? Because it's her scene. She's the one that's important. So now let's let's push on her. Forget pushing on in on everybody else. She's the only one that's important. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's a scene like that in Brightburn where we're pushing in on Elizabeth Banks after the Brandon just got in trouble for breaking the little girl's hand. Where it was like everyone else in the room we don't care about, and we were gonna do like all these angles on them. We ended up just pushing in on her, and that was mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, all right, that's all we need. To, we don't need to push anyone. Do we need to push on anyone else? Nope. So I think it's it's more of just like. I think I there was a there was a interview with Harris Savides that I saw a long time ago where he was saying how like when we first start we intentionally do a lot of stuff right we're like I'm gonna push in because of this I'm gonna you know yeah. I'm gonna light it dark because of this and then uh, but then as you get better at your craft and and what you're doing you just do the things you know 
it becomes second nature to you. you that that literally becomes an additional language that, that hopefully you can translate to the rest of your crew because that's also really important, right? Yeah. You you could tell people you want to do a certain thing and, and everyone looks at you like, why do you want to do that? As opposed to like everyone just going, okay. And not even though they don't understand what you're doing, they they follow you because they know that you have, you have an understanding of what you want to do. Cool. Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, t- let's talk a little bit about Brightburn. I know sure. we already talked a little bit about it, but it's probably your most recent widest release. You know, when it, when it comes to Brightburn, like, so you had worked with Dave on, uh, on the, on the hive yeah. already. And you've done, like you said, how, like how many music videos would you estimate you'd done with him? Probably like 50, 50. Yeah. That's quite a lot of music videos. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, as, that's again, as many days as you would spend on set with somebody making a feature probably, or, or more, oh, yeah. depending on how long you get to shoot. Yeah. Um, I, uh, we were so, I mean, uh, you know, we're really good friends. I was, I was, you know, a groomsman at his wedding and everything. And, and, oh, wow. I've, I've been brought in sometimes to like translate to the producers what he wants to do, you know? Oh, really? Cause he, he just has such a, he just has a, such a unique vision that sometimes just like, well, how, what are we doing? And I'm like, oh, we're just going to flash this or blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, and even sometimes we're on Brightburn, I would get, you know, of the, the, either the production designer who's never worked with me before or props or whatever, they'd say, Hey, we're thinking of this. And I'd say, Dave, don't, they wouldn't like that because I know. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> you're going to need something. Nope. Not enough blood or you're going to, no, nope, you're going to want to go more or, or yeah, yeah. He's going to love that. You know, <laughs> That's that's always interesting because you know you you definitely see a lot of uh, directors and DPs who who prefer to work with each other and you know build whole careers with each other and I I do sometimes wonder at a certain point like where like you know when they're when you're just like so in the same groove with someone like you know exactly what you're saying that you you can almost finish their sentences or you could kind of tell people the direction that he would probably want you to go in because he does have such a unique way of, of of telling stories although Brightburn to me wasn't like to me, the story was the crazy part, you yeah. know, like, you know, it, it, it went into crazy directions, but it, like, it was, uh, it was a little bit less, um, like, like I felt like the hive, you know, like those shots you were describing behind the professor's heads, like that stuff was like real eye catching and different. Yeah. And, and, and Brightburn was more like that story could kind of lead with how, how insane it was on its own. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I mean, I definitely see his vision and your vision in it, but uh, you know, like it, it, it's just such a, such a crazy movie. I love yeah. it so much, but um, so, like, are you able to tell me anything at all about books of blood? Like which stories um, did they adapt? Are you even able well, to say that? Uh, it's three of the stories at the same time. Not, yeah. not so much out of order, but just kind of interwoven. And for uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, The Books of Blood is a horror anthology written in the 1980s by Clive Barker. And uh, Candyman, I believe, came out of one of The Books of Blood, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the second volume, I yeah. want to say. Also, I believe my personal Hell favorite reason. non-Clive Barker, Clive Barker adaptation, The Midnight Meat Train, I believe, was also one of The Books of Blood. Oh, is I, it? Yes, yes, I believe it is. So. Since you were talking about having been influenced by Candyman, which was Clive, uh, Clive Barker's story, like how full circle was it? Were were you laying in any like subtle references to Candyman? Like, did Candyman leave any residue in in the the movie you shot? No, no, it didn't. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, it wasn't a it wasn't a yeah. Well, I think Clive Clive yeah. Barker adaptations like there isn't like one way to do them. They're all they're all so different. You know, from even yeah. like Rawhead Rex on forward, you know, they're every every one of them is its own thing. And I like I, I've always loved the Midnight Me train because it's like so visceral. It's like just over the top visceral. Yeah. That's the first thing I ever saw uh, Bradley Cooper in. Oh, yeah. Um, so with the coronavirus going on right now, uh, how is that affecting your work? It's definitely halted the whole industry. We we only we were a 25, 26 days shoot. So we thought we were going to they were just going to make us work through it. But um, we got the call one day. I said, hey, you know, we're going to we got seven days left. Let's just we're going to put this in a hiatus. We're going to we don't want anyone to get sick. We don't want to bring have anyone yeah. else get anyone else sick. And um, and then, you know, right after that was happening, all my so all all my crew, they were going right off on, off of my film onto a, a big HBO project. And that pushed eight weeks. And, yeah. you know, a bunch of other people were like, oh, we had this thing and that pushed, you know, six weeks, everything pushed six to eight weeks. And I was like, oh, well, I'll be able to do color correction on books of blood because <laughs> they were asking me if I could do color correction on it. How soon do I could do it. Up at your, do you have a setup at your house or something? 
no, no, this is this is before we really realized that it was going to be this bad. Oh. You know, I was going to go into e-film and just go to spend a week and a half, maybe two weeks color correcting books of blood. And then they shut down <laughs> and it was like, all right, everyone shut down. So it's like, you can't, uh, right now they're trying to figure out a way um, to do uh, remote color correction. A frame, you're familiar with frame IO? I am. Yeah. Yeah. So frame, frame we're using frame. Well, but, but actually explain it so that our listeners know about it. Yeah. So there's different ways to screen your dailies. There's DAX, there's, there's a couple of, they're basically secure ways for you to watch Pix, your image. Is Pix one of them? Pix, there you go. Pix. Yeah. And so you can watch, you can watch your dailies on it and it's got your name across the screen. But if you were to leak it, um, they'd yeah. know who to, who to fire or who to sue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they all have their, their, their unique, you know, ways about them, but they're all pretty basic. You could watch your footage. You could write in a little note. Maybe you could circle takes and things like that. Um, Frame.io is pretty cool because if if you're all running through a certain workflow, you can actually make a note and it goes to the Resolve timeline. Oh, nice. And it shows up on the timeline. And so the editor sees a note that says, oh, you know, light was in this shot. Or if something is too dark, but I know I can bring it up, there's a note. Don't worry, I can bring this up. Because sometimes yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll edit and and they'll say oh that's gonna be too dark let's not use it or that's too bright let's not use it but it's nice for them to be able to see like oh oh mike says we can to not worry about um this person that's blown out we can we can bring them down later or whatever so are these tools being used right now during uh, the coronavirus situation to enable you to you know kind of oversee color or is is all that ground to a halt as well like just all the work yeah, I mean, all the all the work is pretty much ground to a halt right now. Um, although, because on this latest movie that I'm on, we were able we, we we started using that that workflow. Everyone is working from home, and they can they can make the adjustments. So we can actually continue to carry on. So what will happen is, at least uh, by the end of our hiatus, we're we're gonna have a pretty good rough cut of the movie. Oh, that's cool. And, well, and, and I even know people who have like professional level grading tools at their house now. It's not mm-hmm. it's not crazy to get like a, a good, you know, resolve system and a calibrated monitor and be able to do that from your house. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, and the editor too. the editor doesn't need, you know, such a crazy, you know, they yeah, don't yeah. need the big avid rack with all no, you can edit. Stuff. You could edit literally anywhere now, like you could edit on a laptop and in, you know, whatever. And you could, you could be able to share that stuff with people, you know, anywhere in the world if you needed to. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, I think this is a good place to, to leave it. Uh, is there any place online where people can find your work or find you social media or, or otherwise to, to reach out to you? Uh, yeah, I'm on it. Uh, Instagram at, uh, DP underscore Mike D. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, my website's, uh, michaeldelatore.com. Well, everybody, please go check that out. And, uh, again, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on to the cinematography podcast virtually virtual tour <laughs> and being our first, uh, guinea pig on, on zoom. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. So, uh, Hey, that, that was Michael Delatore. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, hopefully we can uh, bring him back and be in the same room with him one day when we're allowed to be in the same room with people again. That, that You know what? I, I am hopeful that, that day will be sooner than we all think. So, but sometime in July, all of us will be watching Mulan, and there you go. Uh, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Hey, guess what, Ben? What? 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 Tell me what. <laughs> it's bill paying time. I love paying those bills. All right. Well, we got to thank our sponsor, Aperture. Aperture, who makes uh, the incredible... MC light. I've talked about the MC a bunch of times on the show. We've given some away uh, courtesy of the podcast and Instagram and hot rod cameras. And of course a whole bunch just arrived back at hot rod cameras again, along with all the other sort of lights and things that they have. But uh, the MC, uh, they have a little slogan, a little tagline for it now, which they say any color, anytime. Nice. And that's true. <laughs> It'd be weird if it was like any color except at 3:27 a.m. That'd be weird. I mean, like you probably don't need it at 3:27 a.m. That, but that's right. 3:27 this light just stops functioning. It does that. Can can I uh, can I can I say something about Aperture? They had the best April Fools joke and you know, d- dealing with the the plague over April Fools, I was kind of bracing for like I don't need April Fools. I don't need anyone messing with me over, over this. But they had a, a light that was a skateboard. 
they clearly built like a fully working prototype for this thing. And it was, I'm watching it and it really did get me. I was watching. I'm like, why the fuck would you want to light up skateboard? And it took me a second to be like, oh, it's April 1st. Yes, exactly. Bro, you need a skateboard that lights up your life and you need that skateboard to light up your content. So it's so, it, it was, it was pretty amazing. Uh, and you know, they made a whole demo video for, for it. And like, I guess I'm just like, so used to, it's, it's a great place to get me, uh, you know, watching these demo videos of products because, you know, like uh, sometimes the software companies will do an interesting little, uh, uh, April fool's joke, but I thought that, uh, apertures was my favorite this year by far. Uh, yes. Well, well done aperture. The, uh, the light board was, was pretty awesome. And, uh, I, I, I think if, if you have not seen this April fools, uh, they do it in exactly the same style and exactly the same, uh, everything as their, their typical product videos. So, uh, you might enjoy it quite a bit. And now short ends. All right. So, uh, Ben, what's your, uh, your short end this week? My short end is, uh, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm sorry that everything uh, ends up being kind of coronavirus centric. Uh, in years to come, this will be a hilarious little time capsule of how uh, anxious we were about something that we all survived, I hope. But it's, you know, NAB would be about two weeks from now. And uh, I haven't been able to go to NAB in the last few years because I've been working virtually every time it happened or about to have a baby. Uh, sorry, swear jar. And, uh, <laughs> and but this year, because NAB is canceled... All of the companies right around now are starting to roll out all their new stuff. So, for instance, uh, Blackmagic just released a bunch of new stuff. They have an update on Resolve. They have like a new controller box. They have updates on their cameras and stuff like that. And I'm looking sort of forward. A new little 4K switcher, too, that's already got a bunch of heat behind it. Yeah, yeah. And it looks pretty cool. And I'm kind of looking forward to... uh, from the comfort of my underground bunker in Sherman Oaks, uh, you know, 200 feet below the ground with the periscope that goes up to the surface. I'm looking forward to kind of experiencing NAB the way everyone else is going to experience it this year, which is to say we're not going to experience it, but we're going to find out what's the new thing, you know, Canon and Nikon and Panasonic and, and you know, all, all of these companies are coming out with. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, obviously very in tune with uh, Adobe Looking forward to seeing what the next uh, generation of Adobe Premiere is because I use Premiere virtually every day of my life. So, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting time, and uh, I definitely think that uh, post and media and storage and all that sort of stuff is going to take a, uh, a front row seat uh, for a lot of that now because the rest of production, all the stuff that happens on set, is very uh, social. Maybe let's just say or or close yeah. proximity <laughs> working activity, very, very in person. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hard, hard, uh, you know, maybe animation or virtual production will get a little bit of a bump right now as web streaming and some other stuff is, but uh, I don't believe that uh, that's going to completely go away. There's a funny Saturday Night Live sketch I think I've mentioned on the show before about how the actors uh, need to protect themselves and so uh, they, they have to do all their scenes from six feet away or apart and things like yeah. that, which <laughs> makes kissing uh, awkward so they use plexiglass in between them and stuff like that. So, uh, But but anyway, yeah, I think yeah. that the the reality is is that we're going to be coming back to that and we will figure that out. It's just going to be a, it's going to be a little hiatus. Well, and I think we've talked about this on the show a little bit already, but I'm kind of interested to see when the you know, again, when the dust clears, how many of these collaborative workflows and work from home kind of situations end up just being the way we do it from now on. Because in a lot of ways, like having Premiere at my house versus going to your office and editing and Premiere at your office is there's literally no difference. Uh, The product will be the same. And the only difference is I'll be editing in my sweatpants here and I'll be, you know, wearing uh, blue jeans in your office. So like filmmaking won't, won't be quite the same, but like, you know, audio production, for instance, you know, I think I've told you that Bob and I are, uh, Bob DeRosa and I are developing a project for a major audio production company. And we were actually talking to them recently about not the project that we're developing for them, but something else, which would be taking advantage of the fact that we know a lot of actors who have their own home rigs who record, you know, uh, books on tape or whatever at their, at their homes. And we could set up a zoom session. I could direct them. They could send me the files. I could edit them or we could send them to a sound designer and the sound designer can sound design, edit, blah, blah, blah. The composer, like we, none of those conversations have to happen in person. And, uh, you know, it would be nice to have a studio to record everything in and have everybody in the same room. And that day might come again. But there is a way to produce audio where you don't need to be in the same room as you and I are currently proving. You know, uh, I'm going to call it right now. 2020 is going to be the year of the resurgence of 
audio, audio drama, audio everything. I think audio is going to oh, be from you know, it's, your it, lips to God's ears, man. Oh, God, I, I, hope I will so. tell you that uh, the the rankings, the official ranking service out there has actually said that podcasts have taken a little bit of a hit, like the overall downloads have gone down. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. And I think that's only because there is so much other stuff right now being seen and viewed and everything else. And people aren't commuting the way that they used to. But the amount is single digit. It's there's still overall there. Overall, there's going to be way more audio produced and way more people. You know, you got to clean your house. You got to get outside a little bit for exercise. You got to do some some things. The podcast thing is not dying. I think that there's going to be more and more. It's going to be a huge boon for creativity. There's a lot of stuff that's I think is is happening right now. I already see people who I know who used to be, uh, you know, really sort of like nose to the grindstone with their 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 usual sort of daily thing, but were creative people who were um, uh, maybe saddled in a nine to five are now figuring out some other ways to figure out the express that creativity through writing or through audio and through other other means. So uh, what is your short end for the day? Well, uh, we Week. talk. Yeah, uh, my, my short end is uh, South by Southwest. You know, I, I brought it up last time and actually even the time before that after they got canceled and then there was the drive in. Well, uh, Amazon, who's a, been a big sponsor of South by in the past, actually has stepped up and is now doing something called the Film Festival Collection for South by Southwest 2020. They just made this announcement a couple of days ago, and it is a one time event that is going to be exclusive for Prime Video people uh it's going to be free to all audiences around the country uh with or without though the the amazon prime uh, all that you need is an amazon account and uh filmmakers who want to participate will receive a screening fee for streaming their film over the 10-day period and the launch date is yet to be announced but it sounds like uh it's going to be happening fairly soon they're targeting late april and uh they're going to be posting details uh, uh one of the the duplass brothers uh, jay duplass has already like uh, come out and said very publicly that uh uh, he he loves the fact that this is happening. He's he's been always been a really big supporter of South by. I, I saw him. I, I shot a thing with him years ago there. And uh, yeah, it's, it looks like it's going to be a big thing, which is cool. I wonder if that'll catch on with other film festivals because you know I I do think film festivals have always been kind of like a reason to go to Park City, Utah, or wherever. And it does kind of undemocratize the process of going to a film festival by definition. Like they want it to be a big destination. But what if you want to uh, participate in South by Southwest or, you know, Sundance, Cannes, Fantastic Fest, you know, you name it. There's 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 so many film festivals. And I wonder if there would be an ongoing way after, you know, again, after the dust settles, I wonder if there will be residue of these kinds of things if audiences really respond to them. I admit that I, I do own a domain name, Film Festival TV, for, for many, many years now, thinking that this would be the future of film festivals. Actually, not that it would take a pandemic, this, but uh, film festivals that exist in person for all the people who don't Wait go there. Wait a minute. You planned all this around the pandemic, <laughs> didn't you? Oh, man, it was. I knew it was you all I, along. I actually think that a streaming service that is based around nothing but film festivals and movies that don't get seen outside of film festivals might have really, really broad appeal because there are some really great things that never get seen again, and that's a sh crying yeah. shame. There's some really good stuff that should be seen, and so I thought that film festival TV would be a a, a, a good way to do it. That that was like I registered that like ten years ago. Oh, so you've been you've been paying for that all this time. Yeah, I know. It was something I thought that I, I might I might get to it's at some Ilya's point. It's time to shine. It's Ilya's time to shine. You know what though? That that's like a venture capital thing. You need you need like people and motivation and time. Yeah. You know, ten ten years ago, uh, I decided I had this crazy idea. I'd start a start a retail camera operation. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it, you know, the film festival TV kind of got like uh, shoved to the side. So fair enough. All right. Well, Ilya, who do we need to thank for this uh, awesome uh, podcast this week? Uh, as always, let's thank our uh, producer, Alana Cody. Thank you, Alana. We have more interviews coming up. We have one scheduled this week that I'm, I'm not going to jinx by saying who it is, but it's somebody who we're all very excited to talk to. We are. Very, very much so. And uh, hey, you know what? I'm going to give a preemptive thank you. Uh, because it's going to be coming up really soon here to our our new war story editor, Paul Onersorgen, who's in Berlin right now and, you know, shut down because of the, the coronavirus. But he's uh, stepped up to do some some editing for us. So war stories will start to, to reappear and Paul's putting them together. Yeah. For us. Long listeners might be like, what did you guys do with the war stories? Yeah, the war stories. <laughs> you remember we those things? We haven't put one on for a long time. Well, we, we have a plan. Yeah, and we and we do have a nice vault of them. So it's like Paul's going to be busy for quite a while, but uh, we'll we'll get some together. We'll release a special episode. It'll be fun. 
Sweet. And then obviously we have to thank Ben Katz, who's uh, working even harder than usual because now he has to uh, he ha- he has to combine all of our files and we're giving him stuff from different sources to play with and, uh, you know, can't make his life much easier. No, not at all. Th- thanks, Ben. Uh, let's thank Kay Zalatrachi, who uh, uh, Paul Paul Ornersorgen told me that he's very happy to be listening to his music and is already getting all kinds of great ideas of where to stick that music into those war stories. That's awesome. And we've uh, since last week, I should I should update you and I had had spoken about uh, having Kay's on the show, and Kay said he would do it. What? All right, amazing. So I'll, uh, I'll I'll set that up and we'll uh, set a time to record uh, an interview with Kays. Maybe you and I can both interview him at the same time since we're doing this all remote and stuff. Fun. Yeah, you can hit him with one question, then I'll be right there to like, you know, hit him with another. Yeah, take him down. So Ilya, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. That is uh, still uh, functioning despite uh, being a retail <laughs> shop closed down. You can place orders with Hot Rod Cameras and uh, they will make it their way out to you, including the new Aperture MC Light, which is just now back. MC Light sounds like a rapper I would have listened to in 1988. Yeah, that's because there was a, a rapper named MC Light. Was there really? Yeah, there was. It was spelled L-Y-T-E. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Well, that that kind of ruins my joke. <laughs> Sorry. Because I, I didn't actually listen to MC Light. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, MC Light, well, she was, uh, was, was well known in the scene because uh, it was mostly dominated by men at that time. Interesting. It's still kind of dumb so, by men. Yeah. <laughs> so you can find me at benrockonline.com and you'll find all of my social media connections there, including LinkedIn. Very important. Yeah, LinkedIn. You know what? I, I like LinkedIn. I think it's on, on the rise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> They're still sticking <laughs> it, around. It got bought by I, Microsoft for like $26 billion. And yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's not going away. I, I, I'm okay with LinkedIn. I could I could do with a few hundred fewer emails from them per day but you know in, in general they're they're all right yeah I, I saw someone's whose joke was here are my top five ways for you to contact me and it was uh you know telephone whatsapp uh email and then it was something like smoke signals and then below that was linkedin messenger <laughs> oh linkedin messenger is the worst Anyway, so that's it for that. But we will be back next week with a new episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Oh, we'll be back even uh, sooner. We're going to be back even sooner. We've got a bonus episode coming out right after this. Oh, we do? Yeah, we do. And and we're going to record the wraps for that right after we we finish with this one. Oh, that's news to me. Okay, well, well, we should go so we can record those wraps. We'll (laughs) see you next week. Okay, bye. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.